Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you this morning. Now, there may be a few of you, or a lot of you, who are out there wondering, who is this guy? Well, my name is Devin Rook, and I am the new pastor of Community Life here at TFRC. And my family and I are so excited to be with you, uh, to uh, be here now in uh, Twin Falls. And uh, we've had the opportunity to meet many of you, uh, to get to know a few of you, and we look forward to the opportunity to getting to know all of you better as we walk together in our journey of faith. But this morning, I am especially excited to have the opportunity to be up here and to share with you this morning in God's Word. This morning, we will continue our sermon series, Old Wisdom for a New Day, diving into the Proverbs. Now, Proverbs is a book in the Bible that falls under the genre of wisdom literature. It's a book full of wise sayings about prudent behavior and how to live faithfully and wisely, and how to do so in the fear of the Lord. But what exactly does this phrase, fear of the Lord, mean? It's a phrase that we see in the very first chapter of Proverbs, that we see a couple of times in our Proverbs for today, and at other times throughout the Old Testament. And what it really means is that we are living in the right pro uh, posture towards God. In the, hum in the Hebrew language, the word for fear can mean a number of different things. And when the Israelites are in the wilderness, there's a point where this word is used to describe the fear and trembling as the glory of God passes by them. They knew that they could not look upon the face of God and live. And so they were in awe of God's glory. So the, this phrase, fear of the Lord, really is about a posture of submission to God in which we stand in awe and reverence of his glory. The Proverbs then are teachings that tell us how to posture ourselves in order that we might gain wisdom and instruction from God's word, in order that we might take on this posture of loving reverence for God. And this posture is so important for us as we think about the biblical value of humility. Well, this morning our scripture reader is Marvin Barnes. So Marvin, you may go ahead and make your way to the podium. I encourage you to follow along in your Bible or on your phone. We also have Bibles available. And if you please stand and turn, face the center of the room. Uh, we will jump around a little bit throughout scripture since it's... Uh, four or five different Proverbs, so uh, you may want to follow on, on the screen as well. But we face the center of the room because we believe that Scripture is a central part of our lives, and we stand because we believe that this is indeed the authoritative Word of God. Marvin, whenever you are ready, you may go ahead. From Proverbs 16, verses 18 and 19. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share the plunder of with the proud. Proverbs 29, 23. Pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. From Proverbs 15, verse 33. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord 
and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 22.4 Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. Thank you, Marvin. You may all be seated. Now, what is humility? Humility, as it's defined in Scripture, might be the most misunderstood value in our world today. In fact, if I were to ask you to define humility or what it means to be humble, what would you say? You'd probably say something along the lines of not thinking too highly of yourselves, not being arrogant, not boasting about your own accomplishments or your talents, or maybe someone who's down to earth. Now, that might be partly right, but that probably more defines the value of modesty. So what I want to do this, this morning is unpack with you a biblical definition of humility. Our first saying says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share in the plunder with the proud. Our second is similar, saying pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. I'm sure most of us have heard this before, right? The pride that pride comes before the fall. And pride is indeed a dangerous thing. In fact, C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, calls pride the great sin because it is the one vice that is common to each and every one of us and is really the underlying motivation at the core of all of our sin. And you see, pride is three things. It is competitive, it is hostile, and it is futile. Pride is competitive, and we see this play out all the time in our culture and in our lives. We don't tend to have a real good sense of contentedness, do we? If we're honest with ourselves because of how maybe we've been conditioned by society or the things that we take for granted, it's hard for us to find a sense of contentment. There's always that next big thing, something bigger and better, that next upgrade, that next model up. And we tend to compare ourselves to our friends, right? If they get something, then we think we need to go get that same thing or get something better. And if we don't, then we probably make a comment about it like, well, that must be nice, right? Or at least we're thinking that. Well, I once heard this short story that I think illustrates this point really well. And it's a story about a cars salesman. And he was the best. He closed every sale and way more sales than everyone else. And you know how he did it? With one line. He'd show the buyer a few vehicles and they'd be kind of meh about them. And then he'd say, well, let me show you something your neighbor said you could never afford. <laughs> or we can see it in sports. If you follow sports, you'll see a great player at a certain position get a record-breaking contract. And then another player will come due for their contract and they'll demand more than this other player got. And really, 
when you think about the vast sums of money that it is, it's, it, it's not about being rich at that point. It's about pride. It's not necessarily about greed. It's about being seen as the best, about achieving a certain status, about saying, look at me. Sure, there's an element of greed. It manifests as greed. But if we dive deeper, we can see that it's actually pride that's motivating it. It's about being able to say, I'm better than everyone else. Pride is competitive. And we put a lot of stock in our pride, in how others view us, in their opinions of us. Our pride is often exposed in different ways through envy or self-loathing or boasting or what Pastor Chuck talked about last week, uh, not being willing to admit that we're wrong, right? We don't like to admit that we're wrong. And this leads to the second thing that pride is, and that pride is hostile. It's hostile towards others. It looks down upon others. It elevates itself and often holds itself at arm's length from others. It becomes a defense mechanism in which we keep ourselves from being vulnerable because that's just uncomfortable. And we don't like to admit that we're wrong. Most of us have probably either been told or have told someone else to do what when we're wrong? To swallow our pride, right? But that's a hard thing to swallow. Pride is hostile, not just towards others though, but also towards God. Because pride causes us to turn away from God. C.S. Lewis says this of our pride in our relationship with God. He says, a proud man is always looking down. Down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. It is easy for us to compare ourselves with others. Sometimes we do it to make ourselves feel better, or maybe sometimes we do it to make ourselves feel worse. It kind of depends on if you're a glass half full kind of person or a glass half empty kind of person. But oftentimes we want other people to see us, and we want them to think that we have our lives put together, right? We want them to think that we have it all figured out. And pride creates this hostility. Well, pride is also futile because pride is never satisfied. We've talked about how it's competitive, how it wants to be better than others. It wants that next best thing, that newest model, that newest technology. Because it always is craving something more. It's self-serving. Because in reality, pride is a vain attempt at self-salvation. It's a futile attempt for us to try and save ourselves, to try and find contentedness, to find joy and to find peace in ourselves and what we are able to attain. It's the thought that if I do enough, if I work hard enough, then I'll have to be rewarded then I'll earn my status, I'll earn my seat at the table. And yet in our faith, it is futile. Because if we believe 
in God and that we are doing all of these things, even if some of them are for good, even if some of them are the right things to be doing, but we're doing it in hopes of God's admiration, in hopes of earning something, then we're doing it for all the wrong reasons. Pride is competitive, it's hostile, and it's futile. If we go back to our scripture once again for today and look at those first two Proverbs, we can see that their structure is antithetical in which the first line warns us that this is what you are doing or this is what you ought not to be doing and then says this is what you should be doing. But they also say it's better to be lowly because the lowly will gain honor. That seems antithetical to our culture, doesn't it? Because that's not how our world tends to work. No, it's the champions, it's the winners, it's those who are successful that receive the honor and recognition. If you're lowly, you just go unnoticed. Well, just as today, in the first century, status carries a lot of weight. The first century culture was built strongly on an honor-shame paradigm. And the Pharisees, who were the Jewish leaders of the time, would puff themselves up. They would strive to make sure that their righteousness was known. They would elevate themselves above everyone else, and they would look down on those who didn't act the same way that they did. And they were constantly trying to gain more and more righteousness. And they would claim that it was for the glory of God and his law. When in reality, what they were doing was holding God hostage in their hearts. What they were actually saying was, God, look at how righteous I am. In order that then one day God would have to reward them. They were only concerned with their own status and not the status of others. And unfortunately, we tend to do the same thing. We tend to think that if I do this or if I do that, then surely I'll be rewarded. And yet when we read these words of wisdom from the Proverbs, it says that it's better for you to be lowly like the oppressed than to share in that reward with the proud. To share in the plunder of the proud. Because it's actually those who are lowly who receive the honor. And though the Proverbs are a part of the Old Testament, the idea and language of humility in this light really was not a part of their culture or vocabulary until, until one man turned culture upside down. And you see, everyone was concerned with their status and their honor. Even the disciples were. They were fishermen by trade. That was their livelihood. They were of no high stature at all. Yet we can see this honor-shame paradigm play out in their lives as well while they were following Jesus. We can see their pride. We see their deep desire for status and honor during the time of Jesus. There's a story in Matthew chapter 18 that I think illustrates the truth of this very well. Matthew chapter 18 verses 1 through 5 say this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
he called a child to him and he placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. You see, the disciples were often quarreling among themselves, arguing about who should be second in command, about who was the greatest disciple, who should be in charge. Their egos were on the line, and so finally they turned to Jesus to settle this debate. And yet Jesus flips it on them. Just as these proverbs are antithetical, Jesus' reply to his disciples was antithetical. Now, in our culture, we do value children, right? The first century, not so much. Children were the lowly. They were the lowest of the low. And yet here is Jesus, who is this masterful contextual teacher, who's so good at using either the location that he's in or the things around him to make his point. And here he takes this child and he says, unless you become like this child, you will not be great. And I can just imagine the disciples are standing there. Jesus, who says these radical things, are just saying, like, what does that mean, right? Because kids didn't have much value. And so Jesus often says these radical things, right? He says the first will be last and the last will be first and other things that seem off the wall. And in those ways, Jesus is the antithesis of culture, He says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. He didn't seek out his own honor or glory. He didn't worry about what others thought of him. Rather, he humbled himself to the lowly position of a servant. Now, I want to quickly go back to the idea of being like a child, Children were at the bottom of society. So what exactly did it mean to become like a child? Well, as a new parent, I'm gaining a whole new perspective. And my daughter, who is two and a half years old, is entering one of those stages of independence. And right now, her favorite phrase is, my do it. My do it. She has to try and do everything herself. Even, and even when we know that she won't be able to, we let her try. And then eventually she comes to us and says, Daddy, help please, or Mommy, help please. And it's adorable, right? And you want to talk about a prideful moment. It's that moment right there. Because when she comes to me, or, she comes, or your daughter comes to you as a dad, you know you want to be her hero, right? And it's good. But even though children go through these stages of independence like this, they also have a sense of, in, of innocence, right? They have this sweet, innocent, non-competitive nature. They trust implicitly. Uh, when a child has a nightmare or falls down and scrapes their knee, they cry out for mom and dad, those whom they trust, who they know will help them and comfort them. And they're not worried about crying in public or looking weak or whether or not they've embarrassed themselves and people are laughing at them. They're quick to forgive and forget. They don't hold grudges. They have this implicit innocence, this trusting and forgiving nature about them. 
And in these ways, kids have humility, and they don't even realize it. But you see, that's exactly the point. Humility is not something that is to be possessed. Because by the time you think that you possess humility and you start saying, well, I'm a humble person, you're not being real humble, are you? Humility is slippery in this way. It's not something that we can simply achieve or attain. Pastor Tim Keller says humility is a byproduct of obedient and faithful living. And as kids grow up and as they're molded and shaped by our culture, they begin to become acutely aware of their own insecurities. And as each of us grew up and became more and more aware of our own insecurities, we became more and more fixated on our own pride because that's how we've been conditioned and shaped. That's how our society tends to operate. And that's what we see in this passage from Matthew as the disciples are trying to determine who among them is the greatest. And yet here Jesus, he grabs this child who the disciples probably wouldn't have even known was standing there, would have been considered the least of all those who were surrounding Jesus at this time. And yet Jesus grabs this little child and says, this, this is what greatness looks like. And what's so challenging about Jesus is that not only is what he says radical, it's that he often takes it to a new level, literally. He doesn't just say to this child, he doesn't just say, unless you become like this child, surely are you not great? He says, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is where we see our Proverbs for this morning being understood in a whole new way in which Jesus is turning them upside down because humility was not necessarily considered a virtue at this time. And yet here is Jesus instructing his followers to take on lowly positions, the position of a child in order to be considered great, in order to even enter the kingdom of heaven. Unfortunately for many of us, the task of becoming like a child or taking a lowly position is hard. Because that would mean that then we have to swallow our pride, right? It would mean maybe at times we have to admit we're wrong or give up our dignity or not care what others think about us. But Jesus calls his disciples and he calls us to have a childlike faith. Yet, we tend to act a little bit more like the first example of my daughter. My do it. My do it. Instead of turning to God and saying, Father, help, please. Or, Father, I need you. We say, my do it. I can do it on my own. We think we can do it all on our own. That we can save ourselves. And you see, our pride gets in the way of grace. In our pride, in trying to save ourselves, what we are really saying is no to God's free gift of grace. And that's not the message of the gospel. 
The message of the gospel is that each and every one of us needs Jesus. That each and every one of us is a child of God. And he delights in us so much that he went all the way to the cross to save you and to save me. That he suffered the ultimate public form of humiliation. See the relation there? Humiliation and humility. He suffered the ultimate form of humiliation in order that we might be saved. He takes on the lowliest of positions for the sake of everyone else. Because the cross is Jesus' ultimate act of humility. And because of what he has done for you and for me, we can turn to Jesus and we can say, Father, I trust you. Father, I need you. Father, help, please. I can't do this on my own. We can set our pride aside and we can live into that free gift of grace. Because that is what God wants for us, for each and every one of us. He wants us to turn to him. That's why he sent his son to endure such humiliation. So that we would turn back to him. And our last two Proverbs do exactly that. They point us back to him. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord and humility comes before honor. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord. The instruction is to posture ourselves in a way in which we submit to God's authority, to his glory, in which we put him before and above ourselves. And it says that when we do this, we will be humble. Humility is a byproduct of faithful living. And faithful living is imitating the selfless life and love of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis has a popular quote, some of you may have heard this, in which he defines humility not as thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And in doing so, we are set free. It causes us not to worry about the opinions of others, not to stress about whether or not we have the newest or greatest thing or how many followers we have on social media or whether or not we have our lives all put together. Instead, it allows us to live into the calling that God has placed into our lives. It allows us to serve in ways that are God-honoring rather than self-honoring. As we close this morning, I just want to read one more passage from the Apostle Paul, who I think sums this up perfectly. In his letter to the Philippians, he says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Look not to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, 
Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. That is the posture of humility. And it is those who live in such a way that these Proverbs tell us will receive the riches of honor and life in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Your name is above all others. And we give you thanks for your word and the humility of Jesus who paid the ultimate price so that we might receive honor and life. So as we go from this place and into this world, may we look not to ourselves but to you, imitating the selfless love you show us. May we show that love to others so that they too may experience the riches of honor and life in your kingdom. And it is in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.